leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards in stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The promise of precision medicine to provide more effective and safer cancer therapies that target the genetics driving each patient's disease has been hindered by the lack of understanding of the specific genetic alterations underlying many cancers. Alana Fertig thinks math can solve that problem. Fertig, with a nod to the algorithm Netflix uses to help recommend movies users might like, is working to identify the genes that drive an individual's cancer. Fertig, Assistant Professor of Oncology, Biostatistics, and Bioinformatics at Johns Hopkins Kimmel Cancer Center, discussed the proliferation of genetic data relating to cancer, how researchers may be able to capitalize on that, and how such an approach may also bring a new understanding of why patients suffer relapses and develop resistance to cancer therapies. Alana, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. We're going to talk about precision medicine, cancer, and and math. And and, and a recent piece you authored in the conversation suggesting cancer researchers can learn a thing or two from Netflix. Let's start with the state of precision medicine for cancer, the use of drugs designed to target the specific genetic mutations driving a an individual patient's cancer. Where would you say we are in terms of this approach being the norm? For some cancers, I would say this is very much the norm. For example, um, in a lot of breast cancers um, where women have estrogen receptor positive breast cancers, those women are treated with targeted therapeutics. Um, That being said, the vast majority of cancers, there really aren't known gene targets. And so it's very difficult for those to know exactly which genes to select or how to target the cancer. So I think it depends on what disease you have. What's the challenge to developing more targeted therapies and giving doctors the necessary tools to diagnose patients and treat patients in this way? There's a number of challenges. Um, One is One big one is that there's a number of cancers that aren't necessarily caused by a gene getting overactive, but are caused by a gene getting lost. And these genes are known as tumor suppressor genes, which are genes that are responsible for maintaining the cells in the body and making sure that cancer doesn't develop. And so when they're lost, then those processes get out of control and cause cancer. It's a lot harder to 
replace something that's lost than it is to block something that's overactive. So that's one major challenge. Another major challenge is that a lot of times the alterations don't just happen in isolation. So you might have another alteration in the cancer that's less apparent or has a less apparent function but interferes with one gene that you can target and then can restart the cancer and develop resistance. One thing working in favor of getting the types of answers researchers are seeking is a proliferation of genetic data. What, what's happened in that regard, and how accessible is it to researchers like yourself to tie into these various sources of data? We're in an amazing age for public data. Um, so the National Institutes of Health, and, and, I, and fun, funded by the U.S. government, spent well over a billion dollars and was able to sequence the entire human genome and every gene variant for hundreds of cancers across every single subtype. Um, that data is completely publicly available, both in a raw form and in very easy to use and visualize forms that's accessible to all researchers at different stages of um, research. So we're, we're in an incredible time. Um, in addition to that, we're in an era where researchers are really advocating for open data. So every major study that comes out with this genetics data also includes the data as part of the publication, which enables researchers to go through and really mine the data that's out there and figure out what are different relationships um, that are occurring between different studies and in different conditions. Are, are there challenges in, in tapping all this data that is now bubbling over? Is it available as a single source? Is it consistently formatted? Does it have the same data points that, that you're looking from one set to another? That's a great question. There are several challenges to that. Um, if So all the data that's funded by the U.S. government in this um, large database I was talking about is available in a single source and well-formatted. If data is coming from single investigators, they're going to have their own analysis team that's going to deposit the data in its own way. So it might be all in a centralized database, but it might be have, have differences in how it was processed that will lead to the type of missing data that you're talking about. There's huge efforts in the community. Um, some other researchers at Johns Hopkins University have developed a resource that tries to collect all the public data and make it available for researchers in a common format. Uh, there's other groups doing that as well, and that's emerging as a very popular area of research for data scientists. What data is generally available in these data sets, and what what <laughs> kinds of things can researchers ask of this data? To What types of answers can it lead to? So the types of things that are available are mutations, are the extent of gene transcription or gene activity, um, copy number alterations, epigenetic states, and along with that is clinical data that indicates like how, how long the patient survived, what disease they had, um, 
what else? Let me think. What else? So, what disease they have? Um, a lot of times, we're limited in terms of what drugs they were given. So that's one thing that tends to be missing from the data. And a lot of times, the clinical data is also very can be annotated differently. And it might seem like sort of a trivial thing to mine, but for example, if one data set refers to the word positive and another data set refers to the word plus, it can be very difficult to align those and do an analysis to get the data automatically. So my lab in collaboration with a group at University of Central Michigan also developed a tool to automate those data standardizations to make it easier to access the clinical data in a standardized format. In a sense, you're trying to cure cancer with math. You're working to apply the approach that Netflix has taken to more accurately predict what movies a customer might enjoy and applying that to improving precision medicine. Can you explain what Netflix does and how that's relevant to the problems of understanding the genetic drivers of cancer? Sure. And I should say that this is a much broader class of algorithms than just Netflix. And actually, these tools have been applied within the class of cancer research concurrently with Netflix, but it makes a convenient example for explaining it. Sure. So what Netflix does is you have a whole bunch of, you can think of the data coming out of Netflix as a giant matrix of all the movies that everybody could have possibly watched by all of the possible users. And it has ratings indicating how they get, how, how much each user likes that movie. And the goal is if you have a new user to try and predict based on that information what movies they would like. And so in order to do that, you need to understand what are the relationships between movies that cause one user to like similar things to another. And those are going to vary. So if you think about it sort of mentally, it could be like, oh, I like certain actor or, oh, I like a certain genre. But that's going to vary very much user to user. So what these algorithms do instead is they look for what are the common features that are available across users and across movies. So, for example, they might find one set of users with very similar tastes that like a similar actor, and another set of movies of users with similar tastes that like a specific genre. And then if you get a new user, they can compare what they see to those features. In the, and there's a lot of overlap, because if you have two users and one likes an actor, and one likes a genre, there's going to be a lot of overlap between those users, but that's not necessarily the relevant feature. And by mining the larger data, you're able to tell those relationships. And in cancer, it's a very similar process. Because what goes on in cancer is it's never really one gene that's responsible for the whole function. It's a whole group of genes, but they're used differently in every single cancer. So the idea that we have sort of similar in concept to the Netflix rating system is that there's going to be a subset of genes that are used together in different ways in different cancers. And if we can find those gene relationships, then we can relate them back to different cancer types and predict how they're going to respond and what are the relationships between them. There are complexities at play with genes that you say limit this 
analogy. What are those? There's several. So one, for example, so there's, there's several differences. Is that biological systems are, tend to be very sparse. They don't want to use a whole lot of genes more than they have to. And so you need to be able to account for that. The type of data is also a little bit different because we're going to have a different scale of data. For example, in Netflix, each user can only give a one, two, three, or four stars. And genes, when they're measured, can be measured at all sorts of continuous values in between. So we have to account for that. The other thing is tumors, there's a large degree of heterogeneity, even within a single tumor. So if you took multiple cells from one tumor, it could be using the same gene very differently between those, even between the same cells in the tumor. So we want to have a way that accounts for the fact that there could be some genes that have more uncertainty than others. And so that's one of the things that our algorithm takes into account. So how have you been able to address that? Is it simply constructing additional algorithms or more complex algorithm? So the algorithm that we've constructed um, is based on some earlier work um, by Michael Oakes with an algorithm called Bayesian Decomposition. And the idea behind that algorithm and our current extension are that instead of just getting one estimate for the features, we estimate the whole probability of what each feature would be in each cancer. And so by doing that, we can account for uncertainty in different genes. And we can also embed some of the biological constraints of, for example, not many genes being used all at the same time. You also talk about the problem of relapse and resistance in cancer therapies. What happens when a patient relapses or, or grows resistant to a therapy? So a lot of these targeted therapeutics are very effective for a short period of time. Um, and this can be a couple of years um, or longer, in some, depending on the therapeutic and the cancer. Um, the challenge is that, like you're saying, most patients um, develop relapse. And the reason for that is that cancer cells are really smart, unfortunately. And so they have a lot of ways of, if we block one simple pathway or one simple gene that's being used, they can take advantage of the fact that genes can be reused in multiple biological mechanisms and select a new gene to replace the one that we've knocked out with a new drug. So, the tr so what people are trying to do in research is figure out, can we add a second drug in order to block that? Or with new emerging immunotherapies, can we make our body's immune system recognize those changes and adapt to the changes that the cancer cell is making and block it that way? Is there hope in using this type of data-intensive approach you could better understand relapse and resistance and perhaps prevent it? That is the goal, for sure. Um, so I don't know that we can prevent it, but what I think we can do is if we collect the right data from patients, we can figure out what the ways and when a patient would relapse. And if we have that information, then you could imagine a patient going back to their clinician and getting a test to see what the state of their body is 
and then selecting a new drug to change their regimen at, at the ideal time as part of a routine checkup. So that would be sort of a future goal. I don't think that's currently available for patients. We, we've certainly seen this move towards interdisciplinary approaches and, and bio- biology becoming a data science. What do you think your work suggests about the skills and approach we need to be taking to, to find better ways to fight cancer? I think that it's really critical that we have strong interdisciplinary teams. And I don't think this is the type of research that can be done by a clinician alone or by a mathematician alone. And I really think the future of this rests in building strong groups that span the disciplines with people who are able to communicate between the scientific disciplines to really understand what the critical problems are and be able to solve them together. Alana Fertig, Assistant Professor of Oncology Biostatistics and Bioinformatics at John Hopkins Kimmel Cancer Center. Alana, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Danny. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.